Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode deals with serious and distressing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Beth. While I've got you, if you love how I survived, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other fans like you find us too. I was in excruciating pain. I was shivering violently. I could not stop myself. I started to do some mathematics and work out how long it might take the rescuers to get to me. I thought it could take them 10 hours. I did some more mathematics and I worked out that I had less than five hours to live. So it dawned on me really quickly that I was going to die up in this building. This is How I Survived. Stories of everyday people and how they survived against the odds. I'm your host, Beth Young. You know, am I going to die or what? I mean, I, I look back at it now and I thought, you know, how did I ever survive that? I think that I probably survived for a reason. How I survived. Heaving his massive backpack on, 22-year-old Kiwi William Pike was itching to get up the mountain. He and his mate James Christie, who he'd met at uni while studying to be a primary school teacher, were about to conquer Mount Rapihu on New Zealand's North Island. It was James's first taste of mountaineering and William couldn't wait to introduce his friend to the sport that he was so mad about. Over a week, the lads planned to climb the mountain's three major peaks, the highest soaring nearly 3,000 metres above sea level. We headed up the the mountain, a beautiful day with our great big heavy uh, backpacks on and we were set for a a week of of adventure and for me starting off an adventure is always an extremely uh, exciting time, you know there's a lot of question marks on uh, what may or may not happen and will the weather hold and where might we actually get to, what will we see, so um, for me I was absolutely bubbling with uh, excitement. William and James had all the right gear. Heavy-duty clothing, sleeping bags, tents, ice axes, spikes on their shoes and plenty of food and water. You name it, they had it. The weather forecast was good, but there was another factor at play that was completely beyond their control. What most people don't think when they get down to Mount Strapega is it actually is uh, an active volcano and it doesn't seem that way when there's so many skiers and snowboarders and people trekking uh, around the mountain. Before they'd set off though they checked in with the local authorities and were given the go-ahead. They said there was absolutely no sign that the volcano was about to erupt. As we got up above the the 2,000 uh, metre mark, uh, there was quite a stiff wind, I I recall, that started to kind of beat in our faces and we had to really kind of wrap up with that windproof gear. Uh, There was some some misty cloud that would kind of pass and come and go and um, we were were right in the thick of, of the mountains and it was an extremely exciting time. 
About five or six hours in, the guys reached a small dome shelter, which at that time permanently sat on the mountainside, near the crystal blue Crater Lake. With plywood walls and floors and no electricity, it was far from luxury, but it would protect them from the icy wind. The boys weren't ready to call it a day, though. The summit was calling to them, and they still had plenty of time to get up there before the sun set. It was inside of the dome shadow, which we then decided uh, that we'd go and uh, attempt the summit of Mount Tupehu itself. So with lightened backpacks and after a feed and a drink, we were feeling uh, full of beans. So we uh, took off and I tell you, we got really close to the, to the summit that day. It was so exciting, but unfortunately the snow conditions were, were dangerous. And by that, I mean that they had warmed up uh, a lot over the course of the day and the, the chance for avalanche was was higher than usual. So um, you know, we made a, a joint decision that it was best to to come back another day. The summit wasn't going anywhere. They could conquer it first thing the next day. We discussed whether we should pitch our tent or sleep in a snow cave or um, sleep inside of a dome shelter. But uh, we were pretty knackered by that time of the day, so we decided that we couldn't be bothered digging a snow cave, which can take a few hours, and we couldn't be bothered putting our tent up and that we would just take the easy option, as you do sometimes, and that was to to sleep inside of the, the dome shelter. Right then, it seemed like the easy way out for those who love a bit of adventure. But it would prove to be a crucial decision. So after a beautiful dinner of macaroni, cheese and tuna that was cold before we could finish it due to the minus eight degree Celsius temperature, we slipped into our sleeping bags on the on the floor of the dome shelter. I was really pumped for the next day. I had my cell phone set for the half past four alarm so that I could get up and get fed and get my gear together with James and we wanted to be on the summit of Mount Lepehu uh, as the sun rose. I couldn't think of anything anything better to do or any better place to be so um, that was what was on my mind as I kind of drifted off to, to sleep. But it wouldn't be William's alarm clock that would rip him from his dreams. It would be a much ruder awakening. And it was at about uh, 20 minutes past eight where I heard this rumble outside of the dome shelter. I was half asleep and half awake and I sat up in my sleeping bag. It was pitch black uh, around me and all of a sudden um, just past my feet where the entrance of the the dome shelter was, uh, the doorway blew open with horrific force and this um, door tore off its hinges and ended up in the corner of the building. I jumped up onto my knees and skidded across the floor and grabbed the doorframe to look outside and see what all this fuss was about. Peering outside, William was met with a horrifying scene. It was like nothing he'd ever seen before. And I could see Mount Rupehu erupting. It was terrifying. I could see 1.5 million cubic metres of mud and rock and water blowing through the air. And as we all know, what goes up must come down. And mud, rocks, water, ice, snow just came landing all around the, the dome shelter. Huge amounts of it which burst into the building and it slammed me up against the wall. It wasn't piping hot as you'd expect. It was a gas-driven eruption, but it was still very dangerous. Forced back by the deadly slurry of mud and debris, William landed in a seated position, his legs stuck out at a 90-degree angle in front of him. 
Thankfully, James had been able to spring from his sleeping bag and into the far corner of the hut. These rocks the size of bowling balls and bigger were hurtling into the, the building, smashing the floorboards, the walls uh, around me. And of course, uh, they began crushing my legs, in particular my right leg. I could feel the bones breaking and crunching and flesh being torn off my leg as these rocks came in. I was screaming. At the same time, there was this jet plane roar outside, which unfortunately wasn't a jet. It was the, the throaty roar of this volcano. What happened next, William would never have experienced. Expected. A deluge of water spewed from the volcano and gushed inside the hut. James was standing upright, so he'd been able to stay above the rising water. But William wasn't so lucky. He tried to wriggle free, but he couldn't. A giant rock had shattered his right leg, and the volcanic sludge of water, rocks and mud had formed around his crushed limb like cement. Unable to move, the torrent was coming straight for him. And it submerged me underwater in a matter of, of seconds. And in my simple mind, you know, mountaineering and drowning had never two things that kind of gone together in my head before. Luckily, the, the water escaped as quickly as it came in. It had all happened in the blink of an eye. But their decision to sleep inside the dome shelter saved their lives. If they'd have been outside in a flimsy tent, it's likely they'd have been crushed by the deadly debris erupting from the volcano. William was terrified that it would go off again. James began digging uh, with his bare hands around my legs and I was doing the same thing, but uh, our hands just became useless pieces of meat. It was, as I said, minus eight degrees up there and we were digging into volcanic rock and mud and snow. Uh, our hands became useless. So we had to go with uh, an ice axe and, uh, and a shovel, but uh, no matter what we did, um, I could not get myself free, and nor could James, and he was fighting as hard as he could to get me free. So we decided after this tense you know, few moments that um, the best thing to do was really for James to get some gear on and, um, and head down the mountain uh, to save his life and perhaps my life. James had to go and find help. It was their only shot. Snug in his sleeping bag just minutes earlier, like William, he'd only been wearing his thermal underwear. Now all their gear was sopping wet or completely destroyed. So he went and kind of ratted through all the debris that was in the room behind us and found some clothes. Uh, certainly wasn't sufficient. He stood before me dressed in his boots and um, no socks and his undies and, and my nice Gore-Tex jacket uh, because everything else in the building was, was buried. And I remember him uh, stepping foot outside of the dome shouter for the first time. And he said to me, William, you're not going to believe what it looks like out here. The entire mountaintop was a, a pure white, as you'd expect, but it had been changed to this moonscape look. Uh, it had been completely covered in, in mud. It looked nothing like it looked earlier that day. And uh, being James's first time on the mountain, he said to me, um, right, uh, I'm ready to go, uh, but where should I go? And I thought, far out, this is really not a good start. Uh, was was a really difficult um, task of explaining to someone where they should go. After he'd just been in the volcanic eruption, he wasn't dressed for the occasion. So for James to build up the, the courage and the confidence to leave the relative safety of that building was, was massive. And for William, to be left alone in his state was just as terrifying. 
It was a long way down to base and he knew it would be hours before help arrived. And before he left, uh, I said, hold on a sec, James. Um, I said, I'm serious about this. I said, can you tell my friends and my family that I love them? Because I really uh, was genuine about that and I really didn't think that I was going to see him or anyone else again. And James, being the bloke that he is, said, no, mate, you can tell him yourself. And off he disappeared uh, into the, the darkness and it was... It was quite uh, movie-like. At this point, both my legs were completely buried from the knees uh, down. I was in excruciating pain. I was shivering violently. I could not stop myself. And I had my hand up underneath my armpits, just trying to, to stay warm. And I began panicking and hyperventilating and told myself that I needed to calm down and, and, and make a plan. And I started to do some mathematics and work out how long it might take the rescuers to get to me. I thought it could take them 10 hours. I did some more mathematics and I worked out that I had less than five hours to, to live. So it dawned on me really quickly that I was going to die uh, up in this building. As William sat there trapped, his mind began to race. There were still so many things in his life he wanted to do. But would he now never get a chance? Um, you know, what might my parents, my friends and family think when they'd heard the news that I had died uh, of all things uh, in, a, in a volcanic uh, eruption um, that really twisted my guts but of course there's also other things I wanted to do I wanted to grow up, I wanted to have kids I wanted family, uh, I wanted to be the best teacher I could be, I wanted to go on heaps more adventures but all of that was just being kind of taken away from me and there was nothing I could do about it except not give up so I kind of pulled on my right leg as hard as I could but every time I did sitting inside of that building their bones would pull apart inside of the leg and then kind of crunch and crackle back together and never sit quiet in the, the same place it was like a jigsaw puzzle in my leg after that I was looking at my watch and part of my plan was to try and stay awake uh, but hypothermia uh, had me so I was sitting at over two and a half thousand meters above sea level it was negative eight degrees I was encased in uh, a volcanic slurry of mud, ice and snow and I was just chilling down dramatically and I drifted off to sleep thinking that I would uh, never wake up again. As William dozed off, perhaps forever, James dashed madly down the mountainside in search of help. After 45 frantic minutes of running, slipping and sliding down the frosty terrain, he spotted a light in the distance. As he got closer, he realised it was a snowcat and there was a man inside driving it. Raising the alarm, a team of eight brave rescuers put their lives on the line to venture up Mount Rapihu despite the risk of another eruption. Discovering William's motionless body around 1am, they couldn't tell if he was dead or alive. Shockingly, his temperature had dipped to 25 degrees Celsius, 12 degrees lower than the average human body temp. They dug him out of the rubble, raced him down the mountain, got him into a chopper and rushed him to hospital. But would it be too late? The next uh, recollection I have after that was was waking up. I was um, lying, of course, flat on my back, and I awoke in the intensive care room to a machine pumping and beeping and nurses and people racing around, and I thought to myself, you beauty, I'm alive. Because I just really did not expect to to wake up. It was, in my mind, an absolute kind of miracle. 
the first thing I did was have this kind of thought in my head, which was, oh, is there, is there something wrong with my leg? I, I better check. I couldn't work it all out. And as I looked down, I could see that there was no right leg there, that the bed sheets just disappeared uh, below my knee. William's leg had been damaged beyond repair, and doctors had had no choice but to amputate below the knee. Yeah, a lot of people probably think, well, crikey, what went through you? your head uh, at, at, at that moment. Well, if I'm quite honest, uh, not a lot because I was so wasted on morphine and ketamine and the likes of that um, that I didn't know really <laughs> where I was or if I was William or Wally or what was going on, to be quite honest. The impact of the debris had also broken William's kneecap and caused his kidneys to shut down. His recollection of that first few weeks in hospital is pretty foggy. But he knows James who put his life on the line for him, was by his side. There are photographs of, of James, you know, at my bedside, kind of holding my hand. And I do remember him talking to me in, those, in the first day or two, but I, I don't have much recollection of, of, of what he was saying. I think it would have been uh, much more of an emotional uh, rollercoaster ride for, for James in those early um, few weeks than it was for me. And a lot of people talk of, you know, survivor's guilt and things like that. And, and I know that um, for James it wasn't easy. You know, he didn't get off the mountain and have a beer and celebrate the fact that he saved his mate's life. It was um, much more um, emotional and mentally challenging uh, than, than, than that as well. William was so grateful to have survived, but he grappled with how much he'd lost and what it would mean for his future. What would life be like for an amputee? I thought I needed that leg to, to be William to climb, to, to go on and, uh, more adventures and um, to live a life, but had been kind of uh, taken away from me. And it was never going to come back. And I had these worries, you know, like, um, would I actually walk again or would I um, teach again? Could I go on more adventures? Was I ever going to get a girlfriend? At the same time, William was trying his best to be positive. I, I set myself some goals and it was to learn to walk, to get back into the classroom and to get back to the dome shelter. I knew it was going to be a long, long road to, to, to kind of get there. So I set myself these three goals and almost as soon as I did, I remember this plastic surgeon walking into, into the room and I must preface the story by saying that um, my healthcare uh, was absolutely incredible. I'd give it a 11 out of 10. But this one surgeon dude walked in and kind of explained to me that my stump was, was knackered and that I wasn't going to be able to climb or really walk too far and that I should kind of just go home and take it easy. Uh, words to those effect. And um, I was I was gutted. I, I cried for, for kind of weeks and after a while I kind of realised that actually I'd had a, had a fork in the road. Uh, the easy option was just listen to him and just go home, um, beat up the couch, play some Xbox. And the, the other decision was to, to try and rebuild my life and chase that life adventure that I was, I was so used to. This was me. The leg wasn't going to grow back and I was going to need to get on with life or, or not. Which option do you reckon adventurous, outdoor-loving William chose? As you know, as time went on, I realised far out I was I was one lucky kid. Um, I was still alive, yet I lost the league, and it, and it certainly <laughs> wasn't great. But it, it could have been a, a, a whole lot worse. And I had you know friends and family pouring in and out of hospital. That I think kind of kept me on the, the straight and narrow, and didn't allow me to wobble and fall into to, into depression. William still had dark days. 
But during those difficult times, he clutched to his goals. They gave him a sense of purpose. He spent nine weeks in hospital, had 13 operations, and five months after the volcano had erupted, he was fitted with a prosthetic leg. It was time to tick off that first goal, to get back into the classroom and start teaching again. Tinned up to uh, my new job as a teacher on the first day, legless without a leg. It's quite an interesting scenario, as you can imagine. And I was, I was sweating bullets, you know. I was, I was really nervous about the whole thing and I kind of crutched into this new classroom full of kids that, as you can imagine, just looked at me kind of sideways, uh, of course. And, yeah, got some great questions like, when's your leg going to grow back or where's the skin gone? Uh, are you a transformer? Uh, can I touch your leg? Within 12 months, William had taken his first steps on his prosthetic leg unaided. But it would take a bit longer to conquer his final goal, to climb Mount Rapihu again. James and William made six failed attempts to get to the top, but that didn't stop them from trying again. Five years on from the eruption, the legends made it back to the same dome shelter, together. So James and I went back down for the umpteenth time and headed up the mountain again. Um, it was summertime so there wasn't uh, any snow down at the bottom at all. It was just like a, a big kind of rock desert. So we worked our way up which is actually a little bit trickier for an amputee. Um, walking over hard snow and ice is like concrete um, but navigating up and down and around rocks is quite difficult. After eight hours I had gone well past the halfway point and I was coming over the top of this uh, very narrow ridge and lo and behold there was the, the dome shelter. It was uh, it was an extraordinary moment seeing it kind of appear out of the mist and off to one side would get occasional glimpses of the crater lake uh, through the cloud that was up there that day. Of course I gave my mate James a, a great big hug and, and thanked him for saving my life and for being a great friend which he still is today. It was, a, yeah, an extraordinary moment to, to be back up there, having gone full circle from being broken and battered inside of that hospital bed to, to getting uh, back up there. It's been nearly 13 years since the eruption, but a recent natural disaster catapulted William right back into the thick of it. Around 50 people were on White Island when it blew. Major operation is underway in New Zealand after those apocalyptic scenes. New Zealand's most active volcano erupts with deadly force. Tourists left like victims of Pompeii, escaping, covered in ash. On the 9th of December 2019, New Zealand's White Island erupted. Tragically, it claimed the lives of 21 and injured dozens more. I remember um, sitting at my at my desk and I checked a notification on my phone and I could see that you know, my island had erupted. So I did some more digging, and you know it was it was it was serious. And of course, it brought me right back to um, my time on Mount Rapihu. But I guess my first kind of thoughts went out to the the friends and the the family and the victims that were impacted. I think the differences between the eruption that I was in and the, the White Island eruption was that my eruption was uh, a gas eruption, which was 
warm gas. Um, the White Island eruption was a large steam eruption, which was obviously um, you know, 100 degrees kind of Celsius. So the key differences was that um, White Island um, victims were burnt and, and I wasn't burnt. So, you know, I feel incredibly lucky. It really hit home again just how fortunate he is to still be here and have a chance to build the life he thought he'd never have. After the eruption, William wondered if he'd ever have a family of his own. Now 35, he has a lovely wife, Rebecca, and together they have two beautiful kids, three-year-old Harriet and newborn Oliver. William's no longer a teacher. He's a motivational speaker, travelling the world to inspire others. I think that when we continue to step outside of our comfort zones, does become easier, we become more confident, uh, we become more resilient, we see opportunities instead of obstacles, we can take more risks and ultimately we can have amazing experiences and, and, and achieve the extraordinary. He's even written a book called Every Day's a Good Day and the title was sparked from conversations with his buddy James. He would come into hospital and say, G'day mate, how's it going? And I'd say, oh, Every day is a good day. You know, I'll be honest, you know, some days are pretty crap. But, um, but, but that's life. And um, for me, it's just about being really clear on my, my kind of purpose. For William, that's his friends and family. Sharing his story on stage to audiences across the world and his youth development program, the William Pike Challenge. And, of course, the great outdoors. Despite it all... William's still an intrepid explorer. He bushwalks, scuba dives, kayaks, and Mount Rapihu's not the only mountain he's conquered since losing his leg. He's even scaled Antarctica's Mount Scott. William has another trick for making every day a good day, and it's pretty simple. Practicing gratitude and exercising a little perspective, especially when the proverbial hits the fan. And right now, I reckon we could all do with taking a leaf out of William's book. It's easy to look back on these things and think, oh, you know, what a terrible experience. How unlucky is that guy? But on the other hand, you know, I I wouldn't give back these experiences. Um, They've given me a huge amount of perspective in life. Uh, It's opened doors. I've met amazing people, had amazing experiences. And I think I'm all the more kind of grateful and just cherish those little bits of life, Uh, but more than than, than I would have kind of um, before the accident. So it's certainly come with positives as well as negatives. To find out more about William and the awesome work he does, visit www.williampike.co.nz. If you feel you've been affected by any of the topics in this week's episode, help and support is available by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or beyondblue.org.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss more incredible stories of survival. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really helps. And we'd love it if you could find our Facebook group, How I Survived, and we're on Twitter, at SurvivedPod. Next time on How I Survived. Bang, something's just grabbed me on my left leg, just below the kneecap. Turned around and looked, and it was a three and a half metre crocodile.
and he's just dragged me back down into the water.